the game is that you cultivate a relationship with shakers and movers. How do CMOs buy software? They ask CMOs, hey, what's in your tech stack? Or what have you heard of? And there's a very critical thing where a huge part of word of mouth is not for tools that they personally use, but tools that they have heard of and have a favorable opinion about. Hello and welcome to this episode of Confessions of a B2B Marketer. Today we are joined by Pep Lahar, legend in the B2B marketing game. Before that, let's give a big shout out to Fame who is producing this episode. Also my business, we start and grow podcasts for B2B companies. Now, in this episode, we cover Pep's entrepreneurial journey, almost 16 years in the game from a marketing agency through to the e-learning business CXL all the way through to winter today. So the learnings and the capital generated from those two early businesses are now funding the third. So we do that first. And then we move on to learning how he's growing winter, which is essentially bootstrapped. He's being funded by those other businesses. And so we learn about how Pep is managing to grow those without big ad dollars and through really using his social and content creation skills in order to do this. So awesome interview. Let's jump into that discussion now with Pep. Pep, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So I think maybe many or all of the podcast interviews I've listened with you in the past couple of days have really been centered around marketing specifically with a new journey with Winter. Big shout out to Winter, by the way. It's going to be linked below. B2B Insights on your website positioning. I want to talk first about your journey because I think you've been in the game for nearly 20 years now. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? When does the game start or when did it start? I became an entrepreneur in 2007, but I started my career years before that. Yeah, and that was when you were in Panama, right? When I became an entrepreneur, yes. Uh And so I'll quickly cover this story. So you were, I think you got a remote job or you're trying to get a remote job And then for some reason it fell through. And so you just set a website and started selling to the companies you were going to work at, like online marketing services. Yep. Cool. I was doing PPC, SEO, this kind of stuff. And the point I'm trying to get to is that you have been very consistent in my eyes over those now 16 years, just getting really good at this one specific field of marketing and have gone from, it seems like, agency to media events company, now to like a SaaS marketplace. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, the journey makes sense. As I was (laughs) walking the journey, I mean, a lot of the decisions seemed, um, let's see, opportunistic, or I did not plan like 10 years ahead. At first I do this, and then I do the other thing, and then the third thing. So it makes sense in retrospect, the journey, but it didn't make sense at the time. Yeah, like Steve Jobs' uh, dots thing. So the conclusion I came when I was doing my research is that if you can just stay in one place, in one area, and get really good, and leverage like the businesses you've created before to like go to the next one, this is a good way to, without raising a load of money, like build things that are good. Would you agree? Yes, certainly. Cumulative experiences, you know, you get wiser, you make better decisions. And there's also something to be said about patience and staying power. Because companies come and go, the precious few will stick around and you can win a lot of the market just by hanging out. You're just just existing, provided that you are not losing money. If you are default alive, meaning you're at least break even, you have 
in theory, infinite runway to figure shit out how to grow faster, how to grow better. Yeah. On that note, we have CXL and Spiro that are default alive. How much are you involved in those at the moment? Spiro, the agency, uh, stepped out as the leader in 2016 and so haven't been involved since. I mean, there was, a, I guess, a transition year, but really I'm just on the board, so quarterly board meetings. CXL, it's maybe a couple of hours a week, not a lot. I had a CEO that I brought in, but didn't work out. So technically, I am still setting the overarching strategy. Like I'm making the bets, but I do zero execution work. It's all the team. What have you learned about finding the leaders that can take on those assets and keep them growing, even though they're still kind of associated with you, right? You still care about how they perform. Yeah, I've learned a couple of things. I mean, my true best advice is that promote from within. Somebody that you have worked with for multiple years, you know their characteristics, you know, are they do they give a shit? Do they sweat the details? Do they see the big picture? Are they questioning things? Do they have the ability to be critical? So when you bring in an outside leader, there's just so much dark area. You've never worked together probably. You don't know so many things. So, you know, what happened in my case was I brought in a leader whose mission was to make the boat go faster. And if the overarching strategy and market conditions and et cetera would not change, I mean, he probably would have done a splendid job. But uncertainty. So basically, we had to change the strategy. The strategy was not working. And changing shit up means that you're dealing with a lot of uncertainty. You need to make bets. You don't know what's going to work. You need to try shit out. You need to, you know, have conviction. And this is now a founder territory. This is what founders are extremely comfortable with, taking risk, making bets. You take your average middle manager. No, I mean, that's they're out of their depth. So that what happened in my case there. That was with CXL, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. And like in the past few years, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So now I have a president who's been promoted from within. He's been at the company three years at least. So he really runs the day-to-day -day ship. And I'm just uh, like a, his weekly advisor on things. And like just as a manager leader, you cannot gripe down. You cannot complain down ever. So you need to complain up or sideways. So I'm also for both Spiro leader and the CXL leader, I'm the person they can vent to you know, in their frustrations and I'm the sounding board and I give advice if I have any. Makes total sense. I love the point about promoting from within and I've thought about this a lot as well because there's the added risk of the culture rejecting the new person that's eradicated if you're promoting from within because by definition, they've already been there for a while. They're accepted by the culture so you can get rid of that part, that thing that could potentially go wrong. Exactly. I mean, also as a small business, you cannot afford to hire the best right? The best already working at Google where they can get paid a lot more than your SMB, or they're already entrepreneurs doing their own shit, right? So the only talent pool left for you, if you cannot afford to pay, you know, 500k a year, and I mean, it's severely limited. So you need to make a bet on somebody who's never been a CEO for whom this is a step up. And that's why they're willing to take less money. But of course, it increases the risk. Let's move closer today on winter. Now, from what I have heard, we're at roughly $2 million ARR bootstrapped. My question, well, at first, am I, are we roughly in that range? Yeah, a little more. Cool. And started 2019 or 2020? Well, 2019 is when I got the idea. I discovered the unsolved problem. 
and I started, I knew the problem I want to solve. I had no idea how to solve it. So then the customer development work and R&D started. It was, there was no business. It was a side hustle. It was just me and one dude. We were just a few hours every week. We were working on this, like trying to figure out what is the solution to this problem. Now in 2020, May, we launched an MVP. It was called copy testing back then, but we got the ICP wrong. BTC. Yeah, we were selling to consumer companies, mainly e-commerce. And then we discovered that those people we thought were going to buy this, they were not in, they could not care. And also we learned that consumer research as a category, massively saturated, huge big players with a lot of money and great technology. So really, I could not see how we can outcompete them or how to even carve out a niche there. Whereas on the B2B side, everything seemed to line up. So, and after running some experiments, end of... 2020, we started pivoting. And so basically in January 21, we became what's winter today or, you know, the start off. So I consider really the start date of winter, January 21. But of course, when I started spending money on this stuff, well, yeah, it was, was earlier. I mean, because before we launched the MVP, there was a year of software development already happening. So yeah, 2020, it was already heavy cost, probably end of 2019 already. It was significant cost every month. I mean, significant, I say 30,000 a month, something like this. Bootstrapped, it's also, I could say, self-funded. I think like there's no external money that is funded by you slash the other businesses, I assume. Well, uh, self-funded in the sense that Winter is my third business. So there's Spiro, the agency. I used the Spiro profits to build CXL in 2016. Uh, I think for one year, Spiro, the agency, was funding the e-learning business until it broke even and it was self-sustainable. In the same vein, all the early winter costs, uh, actually CXL picked them all up. CXL, so agencies, low margin business, 20, 30%. The best in the business have 30% margins. Uh, E-learning has much better margins from problems, but better margins. So CXL actually was making more money and funded the whole development of winter so yeah, I was my own VC in the sense. I used the profits. I decided to, so of course, CXL could have used the money to fuel its own growth. So it was a decision on my part. Okay, I'm going to make a bet that this thing is going to be bigger. So I'm going to invest here. I did raise a small angel round as well from friends, like people that I know in the industry. It was like 5K here, 2K there. Yeah, so your role is like a capital or in this case was... You were taking capital from one business and allocating it elsewhere. So the capital allocator role. I think this is such a good way of building more complex businesses. You start with a, it's not simple, but I guess maybe relatively lower risk or simple service business. Right. And then leveraging that for the e-learning and leveraging that for the software slash marketplace. It's just like, I don't know, it's just, you're also building the skills you need to execute the more complex business models in the earlier days of the career. I just think it's a really, really nice flow. Yeah, agency business, easiest to start. Only things you need is you need to know something and a laptop, right? That's all you need. It's like zero risk. Uh, it's like essentially free to get going. And not to say it's easy to find customers. That's always hard. But it's the easiest, the safest, risk, less, least risk to get going. Now, most agencies, when they get started, they dream of, ah, oh, one day we'll build an e-commerce site or whatever. And they never do. There are like few notable exceptions here, like Basecamp and whatever, because they just get stuck in the work. I have learned that the way we did it was that the new initiative, you cannot be in two boats. You cannot be that, oh, 
Monday you work on client shit and Tuesday you do the new stuff. Like it does not work. So you need a whole new team, separate team that only work on the new stuff. And every new initiative needs founder and entrepreneur. And entrepreneurs is my belief are a whole different type of animal from a regular human. So also then when the, the first business is more or less stable, you can promote somebody to lead it, but the entrepreneur needs to grow the new business. If I had just designated my product manager to run one of these businesses, I mean, they would have been dead on arrival. Not to say that I'm a genius or anything. I'm not. But I do have this certain founder characteristics that I just needed. The grit, the, the you know, fast pace and figure shit out and not give up and believe and help make others believe, essentially. And you were the entrepreneur role both for CXL and for Winter, right? You stepped away. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And same thing. I abandoned CXL to build winter. And yes, CXL definitely suffered for it. So not all is rosy, it's, it's trade-offs. Yeah, you made that bet with your capital and with your time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and it seems like it's paying off. Uh, but also without me, winter wouldn't exist. It's again, like you can't like, oh, here, a product manager build this new business that doesn't exist and there's zero demand for it in the marketplace, but you go, for, no, it doesn't work. It is this needs, and that's the thing about founders is like you can create something out of nothing. Like when we got started, we built a point solution for message testing, and not a single B2B company in the history of planet Earth had ever run a single message test. It's like, oh, suddenly you have to tell the market, now actually you need this, and that's hard. And you brute force it, and you believe, and then you, one day at a time. On the topic of generating demand, and now we can get into the juicy stuff that the B2B marketers listening are going to enjoy, I want to dig into three areas positioning how you guys have taken this um, tap need within an existing category of you, the research. That's first one. Second one is I've heard about your social, your Twitter, LinkedIn, newsletter, flywheel. And then I want to touch upon the other like mini shows you've been doing, e.g. do you resonate or can you resonate? So basically, when you decide that you're going to go after a business opportunity, I mean, you got to look at the category and see, understand where you fit in and where you have a chance to win. And I've been a student of strategy as just a personal interest of mine. This is like old uh, Clayton Christensen shit, where if you want to enter a competitive big market, you start in a small place, you start nibbling away at big companies' least profitable customers so they don't fight you. So this is what Kia and Hyundai did to Toyota back in the 80s and 90s. And now, of course, they're eating Toyota's main lunch. But like in the beginning, the subcompact car segment nobody fought them there it's like oh you can have it but like that's only the starting point the same thing very strategically i decided we're going to be completely differentiated which was very important to me to roll out in a there's nobody else uh, i'm a big believer in differentiation so message testing as a point solution was the fastest solution we could build uh, completely differentiated so it's like okay we're gonna first build that and gain a toehold, a foothold in the market. Once we've established there and we've you know, proven out that there's, there's a market here or that we can do this, we can expand out. And so this is what's happening to us today where now it's a third year in business. Now we're at a point, okay, we're going to become bigger than just a point solution. And my vision is way up there. You can build it all, just not all at once. So one, one day at a time. And is the next thing... I saw a LinkedIn post about selling essentially demos to B2B companies. Ah, that's just the feature. It's the test, okay. That's just the feature. It's a highly popular one. Yeah. 
But it's essentially, I mean, the point of view is that your target market should determine your revenue strategy. So and you, what is revenue strategy is like knowing your ICP, what are the pain points, desired gains, all that stuff, and coming up with a value proposition that matches what their pain points and what they want, messaging and so on. Uh, talking to target customers in channels where they want to be talked to, uh, using the type of communication that they want to be, how they want to be talked to, uh, pricing, all that stuff combined. So all the revenue go-to-market strategy you create should come from target customers, right? How many B2B companies are doing ongoing target customer research? I mean, less than 10%, that's profitable data. Now, so we're going after this, where I have a strong point of view. There's nobody else who's doing it. And and why more companies aren't doing it? Because it's a pain in the ass to do it. And we're going to make it super fucking easy. So it's going to be always on target customer research. You do nothing, like a passive usage product. You do nothing, and I spoon feed you what your category buyers want. What do they think about you, the competition, all those things, everything you want to know. And I give you rich quality data about it. So that's one part of that. The second part is like becoming also a workflow tool. So right now, really, we're a data provider. We're like, here's a bunch of data on what your target market thinks about your website or whatever, your messaging. What's missing there is the um, what to do about it. So we're building that. Obviously, like everybody else, we're using AI, rolling out AI-powered things that are trained on ICP data, so our own training models. So essentially building a deep learner. Yeah, so interesting things coming here. And it's really a target customer research platform that we're building. Everything you need to know what the target market needs, wants, things. And the key point is that we started not like that. We started more focused and expanding to that as we're gaining traction. If you're listening, go check out Pep LinkedIn. A lot of engagement over there. And one of the reasons for this, I believe, is your this flywheel we're discussing. So I think you're testing multiple posts on Twitter, then bringing some part of that to LinkedIn slash a newsletter. Could you just talk us through the process you're running? Yeah, so bootstrapped, budget extremely limited, cannot spend myself out of business, right? Cannot hire myself out of business, cannot spend on marketing. So what are the things that we can do in terms of marketing that is more like sweat equity? And content is one of these things. You just need to write it. I've always been a content creator with my last two companies also on top of content. And the mediums have changed. It used to be blogging, now it's something else. And I'll, of course, I'm just not a content creator. I'm also, you know, I run the product, I run customer success, I do sales, I do marketing, you know, like a bunch of stuff, right? So social media is where I write. And my flywheel is as follows, where Twitter, where the algorithm treats every tweet as a standalone thing. I tweet every good or whatever, you know, passable idea I have and see if there's any traction to that. And sometimes, in my case, if I get like 20 likes on a tweet, I know this is a banger. So that goes to LinkedIn. LinkedIn is once a day, mainly because LinkedIn, as soon as you post second time a day, it punishes the previous post. This is at least my observation. So once a day on LinkedIn, so best of the Twitter goes on LinkedIn, post every day, or like every business day. The best of the week goes in my newsletter. How do we build the newsletter subscribership? We can't rely on SEO. I mean, our domain authority is like, you know, 60 something. We cannot rank for competitive terms. Don't get a lot of SEO traffic today. So list building, email list building happens through virtual events. So usually we do two events a month. We do virtual conferences, do online workshops, different things. We're always trying different things. And so depending on the topic, we get, I want to say 350 to 
1,300 people per event signing up. So at three years, you know, you get a decent sized email list. Uh, repeat visitors also, attendees also, obviously. Yeah, and so the best of LinkedIn goes in the newsletter, among other stuff. And that's a huge part of marketing today. And the budget is limited. So and this is stuff we can do essentially for free. And then we also have their other content series, Do You Resonate, is one which you're personally still producing, right? Correct. Yes. So that was more focused around our message testing use case. I'll still keep doing it, maybe just less frequently. Uh, the idea there is, is product-led content. That is not a concept that I invented. A bunch of companies executing really well on it, like Ahrefs articles on SEO problems. And basically, the article shows you how to solve that problem with Ahrefs. Same idea. It's an entertaining format where in the process, I use my own product to achieve an outcome, to find out what the ICPs think about the website messaging. And it's a way for me to just see what the product is because... A lot of people are not proactively going and checking it out. It's been fairly successful, not like a massive viral hit. It definitely contributes to the awareness because in my case, also my buyer is a marketing person and they're all on LinkedIn. So in that sense, how can we always be top of mind? I'm a big believer in the concept of mental availability being thought of by category buyers in buying situations. And it all starts with being top of mind. And how do you, how are you, how can you be top of mind? I mean, that's, you got to appear to be in their feed all the time. So. And that's online. I also am aware that you're doing quite a bit offline, both in terms of events. I think for CXL and winter, you have conferences, but then also hosting in-person dinners. How did the strategy tie in with like winter customer acquisition? It's a long game. So there are two things. No dinner or event will result in instant sign-up. Never. I mean, or really, that's not the game. The game is that you cultivate a relationship with shakers and movers. How do CMOs buy software? They ask CMOs, hey, what's in your tech stack? Right? Or what have you heard of? And there's a very critical thing where a huge part of word of mouth is not for tools that they personally use, but tools that they have heard of and have a favorable opinion about. So in our case, word of mouth is considerable size of our business. I want to say 25% of revenue is word of mouth. And we get 100% of the word of mouth there is for B2B message setting tools because there's nobody else. Another reason why being the only one is a great strategy. So we get 100% of the word of mouth in the universe. There's nobody else to recommend. It's not that it's a lot of word of mouth, but it's maybe 10 signups a month, something like this. And so... You get by mingling and building actual, true, authentic relationships with people of influence, you get more word of mouth because people trust their opinion. They might talk about it. I mean, Dave Gerhardt or Chris Walker, who are like internet famous marketers, I mean, they constantly, consistently mention Winter on their podcast, just casually, off the cuff remarks. And that's all good. This is all relationship building. I did not tell them to do this, you know. But you have met them and build those relationships through offline events, et cetera. Well, offline is just much better. Like, I mean, a, a single 15-minute face-to-face conversation is like two years of DMing each other. And I was like, it's just so much more powerful. And then when you go back to LinkedIn and whatever, it's just that conversation is on a whole new level because you have a, you know each other vibes. I mean, there are exceptions, obviously. I'm talking about averages. Yeah, so with CXL, I've been doing conferences for 10 years. I know exactly how it works. 
And now, so I did my first event with for winter this last spring. Next one again in April. And the point there is again, like invite all my ICPs there, build relationships. Nice. So all this entrepreneurship, business and marketing stuff, because you've been doing this for a little bit of time, I assume there's parts of it or some part of it that you just really love. Which part is that? I mean, I love to be a content creator. If this business shit wouldn't get in the way, I would love to be a full-time content creator. I used to be an educator. I mean, like back in, let's say, 2008 and nine, my main income was selling out like seminars, in-person seminars, rooms filled with 500 people. That's the kind of stuff I love. Uh, I love educating people and content marketing is educating people. So that's, I love that part. It's just CEO, I just have less and less time for it. It's a small, you know, at winter, we're 15 people. So also, you know, I don't just, just have one job. I have many, many jobs. But I guess as you grow the company, some of those things can be handed off and you can do more content creation. Oh, absolutely. As the company grows, my life gets easier in some ways. Amazing. So below, we're going to obviously link to Winter, your LinkedIn, How to Win, which is the podcast, your Twitter newsletter, anything else we should send people to. That's plenty already. And if anybody needs to, it's a test that you won't regret is the messaging slash headlines on your homepage. That needs to be done through winter. Link it in the show notes. Pep, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much, Pep, for coming on. Very open. I loved how you could, there was clearly no filter there. Pep was just sharing whatever he wanted to share. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks to Fame for producing this. And then, of course, thanks to you for listening.